0: Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence with Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode we'll be chatting with Brigadier retired Ian Langford, formerly Head of Land Capability with Army and now, among other roles, a strategic advisor to UBH Group. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much. It's a real privilege to be here uh, and be part of uh, what really is an important contribution by your publication in the public debate around Australia's national security and some of the implications and observations of the recently released Defence Strategic Review. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks. It's great to have you with us. And of course, I'm also joined this episode once again by
2: Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. How are you doing, Ewan? Good, Grant. Good to be back. Um, Ian, I'm... I'll kick off quickly with a question on your overall take on the DSR. As obviously the former head of land capability, what does the reduction in infantry fighting vehicles uh, and self-propelled howitzers mean to you? How does it balance, for example, with the continued purchase of tanks and HIMARS? Are we looking at an army that now has an unbalanced combined arms fighting system?
1: Um, In short, the DSR, and I I guess I'll answer that question by um, thinking about it at the high-level design Uh, implications for Army in the context of the uh, need for a a more integrated, more focused uh, defence force. Um, The Army has uh, multiple responsibilities across all modalities of land combat, and that includes that which is under armour as part of that system that you just described as being uh, enabled by tank, by self-propelled howitzers, by under armour breaches, by combat reconnaissance vehicles, and by an infantry fighting vehicle. That part of Army is uh, one aspect of what it does. It also does aviation enabled air attack operations, aerosol operations, it does amphibious operations, it does humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and it does domestic and regional peacekeeping support. And I mean what I'm getting at here is um, to have a reduction in scope of the infantry fighting vehicle reduces army's capacity in some respects, but not in others. And so the redefinition of a basis of provision to 129 vehicles really speaks to army retaining that close combat capability, albeit in a smaller sense of capacity. And the requisite reduction of self-propelled howitzers makes sense in that if you have a smaller headcount of armored vehicles across that system, then clearly some of your combat support enablers also reduce as well. So there is logic in its design. there is capacity. Uh, That is now different, but it doesn't take any step back from Army's core role in that context, Uh, but also I think it acknowledges Army needs to continue to provide all sorts of capabilities in what's a pretty challenging environment.
2: Ian, at last year's ADM Congress, you made a quite robust defence of the infantry fighting vehicle uh, acquisition, which I think at the time was subject to a lot of discussion in the media. Um, It must... Therefore, even though, as you've just said, the system remains in place, albeit in a smaller capacity for Army, it must nonetheless be disappointing that army Army's ambitions in terms of the infantry fighting vehicle acquisition and how it fit into the broader system uh, have been cut by the DSR.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I understand why you're asking that question. I mean, I'm fairly philosophical about it in the sense that the APC will be replaced, the M113 AS4. Uh, The capability that replaces it is far more technologically advanced. So the whole notion of a one-for-one replacement is a little bit redundant once you start to apply the increase in technology, uh, survivability, situational awareness, and lethality that will come in that IFE system. And so again, it doesn't necessarily mean that Army can't grow to a capability that is bigger over time, but frankly, it comes down to priorities, and in The short, medium term, Army will replace its APC. It will retain a close combat capability and it will have to also be prepared to answer the requirement in the DSR for it to invest in other capabilities as it relates to the government's priorities. So when we think about things like impactful projection, long-range strike and the ability to generate the kind of deterrence effects that the DSR speaks to, then Army will probably do more and not less
0: in many of those roles. Yeah, I guess the uh, it's confirmed we're getting high Mars and there's the, the long-range strike to uh, the littoral waters from land. So, yeah, that, that could balance on that side. But, uh, okay, Army's going to get more, Navy's getting more. We're already having problems getting enough uniform staff to operate everything. So uh, how do you see Defence managing to get enough people when we're already behind the eight ball?
1: This really is uh, one of the critical questions and key performance indicators, I think, of the execution of this policy. So as you know, the Australian Defence Force is an all-volunteer force. It needs to be able to attract, train, equip and retain highly skilled professionals who are also in demand in other parts of the economy as it relates to those demands in uh, work areas, particularly as they relate to areas of emerging technology and the delivery of skills and essential services that put it under real pressure. So there is a demand in all sectors of the economy for this type of person, and the ADF has to be able to uh, attract and retain uh, people in that context. So I think the ability to inspire service, to be able to provide alternate pathways uh, to Work so there will be full time components which remain, you know, really important in terms of preparedness and your ability to fight tonight. But there are also other models involving part time, and uh, to some degree, you know, the the increased use of uh, other demographics that we wouldn't otherwise typically see in uniform to be able to meet those workforce demands of the future. So, where we see, you know, the gig economy as it relates to IT industries, there'll be elements of army and defence and government that embraces that sort of work model just to be able to secure that talent, because without them we can't do it. Uh, And uh, and as has been indicated, as I think I've just said, workforce will be critical to realising an ADF that has to increasingly be more technological and more focused on delivering those martial skills in an environment where you do need science, you need engineering, you need advanced mathematics, and you need those that can harness and use emerging technology in ways that give us the advantage against any sort of future adversary.
2: And as a follow-up to that, could a focus on pushing sustainment below the line free up uh, ADF and public service staff to perform the high-level management and sort of direction-setting roles?
1: I think that's part of it. I mean, I I would also um, submit that many of the recommendations in the DSR relate to process. So, you know, when we talk about transformation, as opposed to modernisation. Modernisation is coming to you know to be uh, best practice in the present, but transformation is a bit like innovation. It's not doing the same things differently. It's doing different things. And so one of the great opportunities that DSR will bring is to uh, recognise that processes and systems in some parts of the defence enterprise are really struggling in terms of capacity, and therefore there will be a need To do things differently. And the government, and certainly key ministers in my observations around the DSR and their public utterances, sort of indicate that there's a willingness now to be more innovative in terms of how we apply process. So, um, that notion of where you deploy workforce to achieve that acceleration and those outcomes certainly features, but I think process redesign and really a form factor review around how defence can deliver capability in a more accelerated context, is where energy needs to be
0: applied. So let's step across and look at the Australian defence industry. And from the DSR, there seems to be the new direction being all about becoming sovereign ready to support submarines and missiles. Is that your big takeaways from this?
1: I mean, there certainly are some pretty significant shifts, not only for the department, but for industry and you know the ability of this country to be able to manage and implement projects of such scale to include uh, submarines and guided weapons. And so the opportunity uh, is significant. And I say that in a positive way as it relates to the defence industry. Um, but the challenges are also significant. And therefore, there'll be A real focus, I think, on the need to further collaborate between government and non-government sectors when it comes to realising many of these projects, but also some of the more basic elements of information sharing and IP and how burden and risk might work in terms of capability realisation where there is a focus on generating sovereign industries that are new industries. And so if you think about um, nuclear submarines, for example, the expansion of our understanding at a national level to be able to employ nuclear technology uh, is really has been limited to science and the the medical sort of industry space. Well, now we're in the realm of being able to enable effectively a propulsion system that is at a scale that we've never dealt with before. And again, it comes back in some part to the workforce issue. Uh, Some would argue, and I've certainly heard commentary uh, out of Uh, ANU, for example, that it would take 10 to 15 to 20 plus years to grow the kind of advanced engineering workforce that we will need just to do our part of AUKUS Pillar 1 when it comes to husbanding and stewarding these capabilities to include nuclear propulsion. So that work begins now. And if there's any delay, for example, around workforce skilling, it just pumps latency and risk into the system that will manifest as an issue at the back end. And so... That needs to be seen also in the context of the DSR's recommendations and really a confirmation that strategic warning time of 10 years, which has really applied since the mid-70s in terms of how we understand risk from a national security point of view, is no longer fit for purpose. And therefore, any delay, any disruption to these timelines only increases the risk of not being ready, Uh, unfortunately, when conflict or when crisis comes into our region And our people have an expectation that these capabilities of such significant investment will be able to provide the capabilities that they promise right now. So for defence industry, there's an opportunity and a challenge. We really need to organise around some of these problems to be able to generate the efficiencies and the economies of scale to contribute in ways that we must. That includes the education sector. That includes how industry and government burden share uh, and then be able to apply that in a context that recognises that uh, we don't have a lot of time. And that's the urgency, I think, of this matter that will make this a priority in its
2: execution. Ian, that's a pretty substantial set of challenges. There's a lot of people to recruit in not very much time, both in, in terms of nuclear submarines, both in terms of the high knowledge base or the highly educated nuclear engineers that we need to stand up this capability, but also in terms of the submariners that we actually need to, you know, crew the submarines. Does Australia have the capacity to meet that challenge in the time that we need to meet it?
1: Yeah, it's another excellent question. And, you know, and I'm aware there are limits to, you know, any sort of historical analogy or, or comparison. But when you think about Snowy Mountain River Scheme, for example, which was, you know, of such a scale that I think it's comparable to what AUKUS Pillar 1 might uh, potentially bring to this country. I mean, we relied significantly on overseas migration and immigration to give us the capacity to be able to engineer and build um, that you know that fundamental scheme to how we water and power the southeast corner of our country um, it really did uh, become a bit of a watershed in the history of Australia when it comes to being able to you know recognize opportunities around big ideas and then to be able to have the capacity which, a lot, which was brought in offshore to be able to implement it. And so there's an argument, I think, in terms of what the risks and deficiencies might look like now around AUKUS Pillar 1 to say that if we emulate uh, projects such as the Snowy Mountain River Scheme in this context, then there'll be an onshore and an offshore component as to how we build this and build it quickly. And I think, uh, again, you only need to think of the pressure on the other skilled workforce sectors of the economy to realise that uh, it's not much benefit to everyone if we rob Peter to pay Paul in terms of taking parts of the workforce away from other se- essential components of the economy and re- redeploy it somewhere else.
2: To return to the, uh, the DSR quickly, Ian, when you made your defence uh, at the Congress last year on the, on the necess- necessity of IFEs and armies capability, One point you made was that the need for close combat will will never go away, and I know you've just said that Army will retain that close combat capability, but the DSR has put quite an emphasis on long-range fires and envisages the Australian Defence Force as moving to this focused sort of long-range force. Are missiles the answer to everything? No, not
1: in the slightest. Um, Context matters, and the context around long-range strike in terms of the DSR is to be able to build the kind of deterrence effect in our region that can allow us to potentially hold a future adversary in some sort of operational dilemma at distance. So it's not about outcompeting competing uh, any regional or great power. It's not about uh, forfeiting other capabilities and relying solely on missile technology to defend the nation. It really is, I think, focused on providing that deterrence by denial uh, aspect of the DSR that it seeks to to recognise and mitigate just because of our geographic circumstances and also the opportunity as it relates to being able to access that technology and then apply it in a really defensive uh, way. So, I mean, I I think about this in the context of what is Australia's own anti-access area denial system in terms of being able to provide positive control around our key maritime lines of communication and our choke points, if you like, across our northern approaches. And missile technology represents part of the solution when it comes to generating deterrence effects in that regard. If I take missile technology and I apply it in a uh, pretty analogue sort of way, I'd make the observation that, you know, four and a half to 5,000 missiles later, Russia is no closer operational level success in Ukraine despite the fact that it's thrown literally every missile it owns at that problem. And that's not to say that uh, we shouldn't invest in the context of the DSR on these essential technologies because they are critical and the document correctly highlights where we must increase our capacity to be able to generate those sorts of deterrence effects and missiles will help do that. But they aren't certainly the be-all and end-all when it comes to being able to answer every problem that you find in Uh, modern military operations, many of which are historic but some of which are emerging. And the other thing I'd just uh, highlight to sort of round out this question is that, you know, too often in Australia the debate around military platforms is in the context of either or. The reality is it's and, and, and both. And so, yes, there is a reduction in some aspects of the capability spectrum in order to plus up other areas, but there is little argument around, I think, in the serious debate of modern warfare that you need close combat and you need missiles and we need to adjust our focus, our resourcing and our priority to meet the needs that are spelled out in that very important document that was released about three weeks ago.
2: Some of the uh, commentary around Army's role in this anti-access and area denial deterrence posture is that it's uh, becoming more like the Marine Corps. Do you think that's accurate? So, in in to answer your
1: question specifically, you know, the army has in its DNA the ability to operate in a littoral context across the Southwest Pacific, the Southeast Asia. Um, one only needs to look at some of the operations up the East Sepik River, for example, in the Second World War, where our army was moving hundreds of kilometres up some of those key inland waterways to be able to generate sort of operational maneuver against the Japanese, that would prove decisive. Uh, In the same way, uh, we have a storied history in our Army of it operating things like landing crafts up until the early to mid 1970s when that role was formally handed over to the Navy. So the ability to move across littoral seams is elemental to the Australian Army. comparison between whether again army has to choose as to whether it's going to be a marine corps or a land army again is a bit of a false economy because in the context of when we compare ourselves to the americans they have both our army needs to be able to do both and so i don't think it's a identity crisis or uh is the army conflicted in any way by being able to be littoral in its focus because our geography requires that but also recognize that whether it be within a coalition context, whether it be leading a regional stability operation or whether it be providing humanitarian assistance disaster relief, the Army also needs to be able to generate those sorts of land and land combat effects uh, in the way that you know maritime, air, space and cyber require it to. And so, again, this isn't an either-or context. The Army needs to be able to
0: do both. So, Ian, bring us back, to long-range strike and Army and Navy and Air Force doing long-range strike from their various platforms, who or what is going to do the actual targeting for long-range strike capability? Because we don't actually have that at the moment, do we?
1: Well, it's maturing. I mean, I would say in um, the context of what the ADF needs to be able to do, it's got to be able to sense at range. So, again, the Army is going from a battlefield geometry of the 0 to 100 kilometre range to now sit alongside maritime and air and think about the battlefield in terms of hundreds to thousands of kilometres, you would then array sensors using assets from, again, uh, other domain platforms and capabilities and essentially fuse uh, those uh, sensors and what they're ingesting into a common targeting picture, um, there is, uh, you know, loose language uh, to include terms like kill chains, which then really describe how that information is fused, how it's presented, how essentially it's then given to a decision maker, a target engagement authority, for example, to be able to conduct what I would call the weapon earing which is to assign the right sort of effector to be able to achieve an effect on that target that's been, you know, detected by the sensors and the aggregated view that comes Um, through a common picture, and then uh, it would not matter really which platform or domain that that effector came from because the target is effectively joint in terms of how it's sensed, how it's inspired uh, and and assigned as a target, how it's weaponied and then how it's dealt with in terms of the effectors. So if this is done correctly, it becomes essentially domain agnostic you take a systems of systems approach where you have sensors and effectives, and then it's really about supporting the decision maker around weaponizing the right solution to that problem, and then using, as I said, what some people refer to as kill chains to be able to apply that. The real challenge becomes one of capacity. So one target is one thing; hundreds of targets might be another. And again, it's for policymakers. And capability managers to think about what's the threshold in terms of how many targets do you want to be able to concurrently essentially uh, sense and then affect based on your requirements in terms of your overall mission and what you're seeking to do.
2: Ian, do you have other insights from the DSR uh, in your reading of it that we haven't mentioned so far?
1: I think, I mean the AUKUS Pillar 2 Uh, emerging technology space is really interesting. Again, it sits in parallel to Pillar 1 around our reliance on a pretty exquisite part of our education sector and workforce that needs to get uh, much bigger, much more quickly. But that said, Australia is leading in quantum technology, for example, and we've got very good capacity to contribute in our own sort of nuance and niche way in other areas to include Uh, artificial intelligence and robotics. And so, you know, we have relied historically on a technology edge to be able to offset the lack of mass that, you know, such a small population as ours can generate in that traditional sort of, you know, Napoleonic military context. And so AUKUS Pillar 2 will be really important for us to be able to both contribute to our alliance obligations with the Americans and the British in this case, but also To be able to access and burden share with those other two countries, some of the challenges around solving the big issues as it relates to getting first access to technology and then applying it in a national security context. So that's really exciting and and there's some real positive energy, I think, for defence industry and for really all facets of our society, our economy, our education sector to be engaged and there'll be a dual purpose benefit as it relates to taking some of those technologies and then applying them in other fields. And one only needs to look at what um, DARPA and CERN did effectively with the internet to realise that there is that waterfall effect that can generate net positives beyond just the national security sector. Um, The other piece around the DSR, which I think is significant, is, you know, its ambition as it relates to posture. So, you know, there is a lot, Uh, in that document to be analysed and understood about what it might mean regionally in terms of, again, being able to lead in the region, be able to build partnerships, be able to exercise our alliance and give Australia a middle power leadership role um, that I think is needed but also, quite frankly, necessary as it relates to being able to build the kind of collective security arrangements that this country is seeking both in its defence policy updates and its broader foreign policy.
0: Like we're looking at just at the next three, four years, two to four years. Do you have any specific recommendations that defence industry might want to be considering? You've spoken a lot about the big picture. I'm just looking at one last little bit of tactical before we start wrapping up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would really, if I was a uh, you know leading in defence industry, I'd be very much focused on how do I build some of those intergenerational partnerships. That can enable greater transparency between the department and industry, and therefore how industry can better anticipate future statement of needs and requirements. So you know it can respond much more quickly when defence issues, um, you know, its 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 uh, need through you know projects and 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 other sort of uh, initiatives. And so you know those relationships become really important. Um, the other piece is is capacity and I think one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of years is that there's a real binary sort of focus on the relationship between the Commonwealth or defence and defence industry and where I think we're all missing a trick and there's no villains in this, it's just about how you make efficiency out of opportunity, it's the business to business piece. So how do some of the primes and other sort of leaders in the field generate opportunities for other industries to be able to better integrate, better cooperate, and really deliver more fulsome solutions when it comes to future capability. We all focus on capital investment. It's all about the platform, it's all about the dollar figure, and it's about the delivery timeline. What is often missing is the training system, is the facilities and infrastructure build, is the need to really give a whole of life focus to a platform or a capability. So then it allows other elements of defence industry to be able to do that sort of long-term planning, build the solvency um, capacity they need to be profitable because that's what all companies are focused on as well as, you know, superior products and services and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you can build that level of trust and commitment and focus in terms of business to business, being able to collaborate to build a more fulsome, FIC enabled capability and then the Commonwealth being able to be able to be really clear in how it issues its needs and requirements, then you know, there is a, a mutual benefit for everyone involved, both in the short, medium and long term.
2: Ian, moving to uh, your transition to your current role, can you talk to us a little bit about that, um, how your journey from Army has been into what you're doing now?
1: Sure. i left in uh, July, August of last year, um, really spent some time um, you know, getting 31 years of service um, and putting that into context, which I'm very proud of and grateful for. And then really I'm on an exploration in terms of some of the work I've been doing in academia, which I've got a couple of appointments for. But um, with UBH, for example, and the team there, I've served with uh, the three founders uh, in Special Operations Command. I'm attracted to the values and purpose of that company, and I'm really interested in their capacity to enable technology, which our soldiers, sailors and aviators desperately need, uh, both now and in the future. And so with that in mind, where I can provide some insight and give some focus to their own uh, business intelligence and their planning as they position themselves for opportunity... I'm very happy to do that because it provides essentially for me, uh, albeit not in the same way, another form of service. This is how I think veterans and those that leave the defence force but still want to contribute uh, can do so in a way that's meaningful and you know really does push value into the company, and in turn the company reciprocates by valuing what you're doing. So there's that real sort of feeling of uh, positive momentum and empowerment in you know, another form of service, if you like, in terms of what I'm doing right
0: now. Well, you did mention um, some, you know, academia and so on. You've recently graduated from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. uh, and You've taken on an associate professor role with uh, University of New South Wales. So definitely covering a a large range with those two. Uh, What do you see as the main activities that are going to keep you busy over the next three to five years in all of this?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I really in, I enjoy um, the academic work I'm doing. I really enjoy the interaction um, with the students. They're postgraduate, so they're all mid-level career-type people, uh, and so they've got ten to fifteen years of experience, and they've got what I define as uh, wisdom, which is earned knowledge, and they apply that to the course curriculum, which is um, you know just as inspiring for me as it is for their. Them and their experience, um, and I'm also very sympathetic to the challenges that uh, many in the defence industry face when it comes to, you know, getting the kind of business model and solvency settings right, so that they can be the best versions of themselves. You know, there are very few people who aren't genuinely motivated. Almost everyone I've met in the defence industry is inspired to be part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, and they're looking for opportunity in that regard. It's it's less about trying to position for advantage against others in the marketplace, and it's more about how can I help. And I really uh, sense a real common purpose in defence industry in the people that I talk to. doesn't mean there aren't frustrations, but understanding the department, being able to be more responsive to the ADS future needs and requirements, that's the sense that I get. When i talk to many in defense industry and if i can help them with that i'm very happy to
0: excellent well i think that's a great point to uh wrap up this uh, discussion gentlemen thank you so much for uh, coming and having this chat ian thanks for joining us
1: thanks very much i really appreciate it and again i just want to um express my gratitude to uh, this publication and all that you do because it's really important that we have a professional discourse around defense and national security that's informed and intelligent so thanks very much thanks Ian. appreciate
0: that and of course thanks to everyone for listening once again and don't forget if you enjoyed this episode you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show meanwhile thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode the adm podcast is produced by southern skies media on behalf of australian defense magazine a YEFA media title The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au.
1: You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.
0: Southern Skies Media.